Welcome to Where Next, conversations with Matt Project Office, a design studio that crafts physical products for the digital age, bridging the gap between people and technology, the material world and the virtual. Where Next is a new podcast series tackling the role design can play in shaping our everyday lives. Each episode, we invite an expert panel to pull apart a pressing social issue and discuss where design may be able to make a difference. This episode, we ask the question, is old a dirty word in design? Thank you everyone for joining us today for the latest conversation with MAP Project Office. Today we're going to be looking at the topic of circularity in design and sustainability, which obviously these are issues which everyone across the industry is thinking about and trying to work out how they can integrate into their practice uh, a little more holistically moving forward. The specific question we're going to be looking at and thinking about today is this idea of whether old is a dirty word in design. As a discipline, as an industry, do we have issues with oldness? In consumer electronics, we're all familiar with planned obsolescence and new additions of devices arriving all the time to replace older ones. While in other areas of design, we know how much the industry is susceptible to trend and fashion, where perfectly good products are abandoned or sent to landfill just because a new colourway, say, arrives. We have a really great panel today to discuss these issues, and they are going to introduce themselves now. Our first speaker is Priya Kanchandani. Hi, I'm Priya. I am a writer, curator and commentator, and I work at the Design Museum in London as head of curatorial. Um, And among other things, I'm currently developing um, an uh, an exhibition about the fashion designer Bethany Williams, who might be relevant to our discussion. We also have Richard Stevens. Yeah, hi there. I'm a principal director at MAP Project Office, industrial designer, practising for too long now, but across everything from automotive, aviation, consumer electronics and sort of product and furniture. So quite a wide breadth of manufacturing experience. Mads Kusgaard Hansen. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I work as a senior product manager and I'm heading up the product circularity work at uh, the Danish audio brand called Bang & Olufsen, which was actually founded back in 1925. Personally, I've been working with, with science and, and innovation for almost 20 years and actually for the last eight years with a dedicated uh, focus on circular economy, design thinking principles as sources for inspiration to try to innovate for the better. And our final panelist today is Hella Jongarius. Hello. I'm a designer. I've studied design, but my thinking and my approaches have always been more artistic. The field that I've chosen to work in is the industrial world because I wanted to change the system from within. But lately, I'm not working with companies, uh, but more with museums on research projects. And I initiate those research projects on myself, uh, like colors and 3D weaving. And my meta topic is my interest uh, in the relation between a human being and an object. It's interesting you mentioned that shift towards more research because you've always had that element to your work. But in the past, you worked with some really big, prominent brands. Vitra is a very obvious one. And then in 2015, you you launched a really interesting manifesto called Beyond the New, um, which which took aim at what you saw as a problem within the design industry as newness for newness's sake. Uh, what, what prompted you to do that? You worked with Louise Schoenberg on it. What, what made you both feel that enough was enough and you, you wanted to say something about that? 
Yeah, at that time, you know, going to Milan every fair and every fair coming back without any energy, only seeing new stuff without any meaning, only a new style and not no ideals, no vision on uh, what we have to change in the world for the climate crisis and so on. So we wanted to make a statement because we have very often conversations about design and now we thought let's make a manifest because you know let's raise our voices I feel responsible as a designer so that's how it came about after years of frustration I can say. What reception did that manifesto get because anecdotally from speaking to people about it one of the really interesting things were I think people were very glad you'd put it out there and someone was saying something about it because these were issues which everyone, I think, to a degree felt. But the problem is no one seemed to really have a great sense of how to get out of that cycle. How do you solve that problem? What kind of feedback did you get from colleagues in the industry and other designers? It was like a bomb, you know. Everybody saw it, everybody talked about it. It was really, it it, it resonated enormously. So um, it is a voice, it is an opinion or or a belief everybody has, as you said. And in the industry, you know, we're all in this system. It's very hard to get out of this system because we design is so close to the market, to capitalistic economic system. So it's quite hard also in Milan to go out of the circle. Of course, if you are a teacher on an academy and uh, you're a student, you can think of new materials or new ways of producing or speculative design. This all came a bit later, after 2015, because we're now talking about seven years ago. That's quite long time ago so in this seven years a lot of changed also within industries that because we have also the politics behind us uh, we have to have some fossil free carbon free footprint measurements for the coming future so it is on the agenda of all industries now and also i believe i hope on the agenda of designers and that has changed in this last seven years so at the moment in 2050 it was not on our agenda not not really at the forefront but now it is really really everybody it's the only question we have to solve i think i believe Priya, you're not a designer by training, but you're someone who has a real overview of the industry through your work at the Design Museum and Curation. Is this idea of sustainability and this sort of issue which design has around ideas of oldness, is that something you see very much preoccupying practitioners at present? Yeah, definitely, Ollie. I mean, the idea of designing out waste um, and trying to use our resources better is probably the central occupation of designers who are working now. However, I would say that what I perceive is that there is a sort of divide between a sort of generation of really innovative uh, designers who are experimenting with new materials and sources of materiality like algae and all sorts of things. And then there is the sort of vanguard of the design industry itself, which is centred around manufacturing and I feel that there is a disconnect between the two and I think it would be really interesting to discuss that. So on the one hand, there are practices who are like super innovative, like former Phantasma. There is like Audrey Chiesa, um, you know, Bethany Williams, a fashion designer. But within their fields, these designers are still anomalies. 
So I feel that there is a disconnect between that and the design that we then consume and see in shops, etc., and which is actually accessible on a scale that could actually change the world in the future. Richard, is that something I can ask you to weigh in on? Because it's interesting, Map works with clients of very different scales. And as Priya said, in this realm of sort of independent designers, we're seeing some very exciting material innovation and people really pushing and trying new things. Is that something you see carrying through into industry being picked up by companies? I think ultimately, there's a lot of guilt around in the product design world around just generating more things. But ultimately, any designer is trying to achieve something that transcends time, that it, that becomes timeless. That's the ultimate success. And in that way, you're creating something that does follow the principles of circularity. And any new materials, any new manufacturing that can build on those principles, I think is absolutely key. So it's our responsibility as designers to go out of the way to find these kind of new and exciting innovators in materials and manufacturing, to bring them into the fold and, and make that difference, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, Mads, could you weigh in on this? Because it's interesting, as Richard said, Bang & Olufsen is a company whose products are known to last and they have real design value and collectors keep them for years. But the field in which you work in, consumer electronics, it's almost the big bad in terms of its general reputation, right? If you're talking about waste, if you're talking about an obsession with the new and disposability, I mean, we don't need to look much further than consumer electronics. What's your impression of the general landscape? I mean, first of all, I think it's 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 very important to be transparent about how things are actually working today to have a starting point for doing a real change. Because it is true that the way that the consumer electronic industry operates today is far from long-term sustainable. There's a lot of materials being used, a lot of energy is being used as well. And we see also concerning increase in the global sort of waste, e-waste generation, right? So definitely the starting point needs to be that we as an industry need to realize that things need to change, right? What then, though, is, you know, at least point in a very positive direction, and if I should just pick up on, on what uh, Priya just said, that, you know, actually starting to moving the design process from being centered around just objects to be expanded into understanding a bigger system and how that system works and operate, not just to the sort of gate of the factory, but, but all the way to the end of, of the first useful life cycle of a product. I think that is really of key importance because when you get to those sort of downstream processes of disposal, collecting of products and dismantling, it's actually quite you know challenging and dirty business, right? We need to understand better how we can help these companies taking that responsibility to, to be efficient you know, in their work and, and make sure to recover as many resources as possible. However, I also think that it's important that we just not stare us too blind in, in the recycling process because I think there's a lot of value to be captured in what we call the inner circles, right? So basically make sure that we can have products to circulate longer um, through upgrades and repair and, you know, redistribution, basically. So, so I think it's really important that we manage to keep our eyes on, on both sort of areas. How optimistic, and this is an open question, do you think we should be about whether these changes will actually come to bear? Because I'll give you an example. Recently, I bought some earphones uh, they broke after about a year, which is probably a story in its own right. They were within warranty. When I sent them back to the uh, supplier, they said, oh, yeah, no, these these could be repaired, but we're not going to do that. That's not included within the warranty. It would be too expensive. They then said, oh, we can send you a new pair for free. 
that's fine. That's completely fine. So for this company, they deemed it made better business sense to just send you an entirely new one rather than make a relatively small repair. And I think that's a story which lots of people have similar experiences to that, right? We kind of know what we need to be doing. We need products that can be repaired. I mean, Priya, you mentioned that disconnect between the sort of uh, experimentation going on and whether that actually comes through. How optimistic are you that we might see some change? Okay, so I feel like the will is there and the passion and the desire to change. And that's on the part of large corporations and small designers alike. However, we live in a capitalist society and therefore bigger corporates who stand to make the biggest difference on this issue, they are ultimately driven by their bottom lines. And that is a fact of the design industry in which we work. And, you know, Ollie, the example of your headphones really epitomizes that because ultimately a company has to ask itself, do we repair these headphones or do we issue a new set, which is going to be the most resource effective because that's how a capitalist society is driven. Therefore, I feel that the significant change can only really come when there is a financial incentive. Um, and I'm talking about tax break, for example. So if you repair a product rather than reissue it in that particular example, is there a way in which that corporate could be issued with some kind of tax break? I feel like ugh, these ideas, they need to be translated into a system which already exists and is, is sort of at odds with the idea of just a pure ethical practice. Hella, what's your experience on this? Yeah, it is in industry quite difficult to implicate the new materials because the requirement, the industrial requirements that you have to reproduce the materials each time, they have to look the same, they have to perform the same, they have the industrial testing. So the gap is on material level so big, it's not because industry doesn't want, but it is not available. We can't buy the new materials on an industrial scale so that it is tested and the requirements on UV lighting or the safety issues on fire, retardantness and whatsoever. And the cost, the gap is big because the materials are now in process to be designed and made by the suppliers of materials. So that's why the gap is now still so big. And also if you talk about leather, you know, the waste of leather. If you have an Eames chair and there is a little pock because there was a mosquito on the skin of a cow and it's on the middle of your Eames chair, is this something you can sell? Is there maybe a group of consumers who are interested in a skin like this or in a vegan leather chair? But if you talk about vegan leather, it's plastic again. And plastic has also all the issues. The questions are bigger in the industry. And it's not that we don't know what's happening. And uh, they're also very happy to have a vision from the outside. They know what's happening and I push it forward. And But practical the availability is not there yet. And we also have to change maybe the testing criteria. Maybe it can't be so durable, the new materials. Maybe the cost has to be much higher. So it, the whole system needs to be rethought of. How do you do it, Mads? Because Bang & Olufsen does run some programs to refurbish older devices. And in some senses, an older Bang & Olufsen piece is even more desirable than one just off the factory line. Collectors go wild for these things. 
we also have to, to sort of, uh, at least for the consumer electronic industry, right, uh, we have to admit that as a whole, we have been spending a lot of time for the last decade to tell co- uh, consumers that things cannot last. You know, average lifetime duration of products across the consumer electronic industry has just been dropping and dropping and dropping, right? So right now we have that issue that we have been telling that things cannot last, right? So that is a trend that we need to start changing now. And we also need to sort of educate our customers or consumers. There could be options where this can be done in a both convenient and cost-effective way. So that's one element. The other one is also really the key word of designing for, right? Because the problem here is that we come in the industry from this period of time where we have been just seeing the drop of, of lifetime duration. We have not really prepared the products as an industry to make it convenient and efficient, you know, to repair, right? So there needs to be a transformation where we start creating products where we actually design for repairability. We prepare this, the architecture of the product to be upgradable and so on. We see that work uh, very well for us in some of our product categories, but we definitely also face the challenges in some of the product categories like truly wireless earphones and headphones, where you see a totally different, you know, competitive landscape in terms of pricing, but you also see a very fast moving technology that gives sort of technology obsolescence uh, or brings that into the, the equation as well, right? So we seem to have good traction on the, you say, the more expensive products, but we definitely also face challenges in doing uh, it on other product categories. So that's something that we are looking at now. Richard, what's your experience? Because Matt, you design products of all kinds. You've worked with companies of all different scales. What's your experience of this? Yeah, it depends on what sector you're working in. I mean, one of my biggest frustrations at the moment is the automotive industry. And it's similar to your headphone example, where you'll, as a consumer, that up to a point, you are prepared to go out of your way to do what you know is right in terms of, you know, addressing some of these kind of obsolescence, planned obsolescence issues. But the manufacturers, particularly in the automotive industry, are slow to adopt the principle of circularity and that's born out of the i think the issues of electric vehicles and battery warranties and the fact that whilst we make every effort as mads kind of alluded to design for knockdown and breakdown and reuse and kind of longer lifespan in in the market for components within products the very nature of battery powered technology is that it depends on the batteries being fused there's a real issue with our desire to have everything to be portable including the vehicles that we you know, we move around in and the things that are driving it here at where next we like to tease apart the big questions facing designers now and in the near future like how can we nurture the next generation of design talent and ensure that the future of the discipline is fair, accessible and representative of wider society? As such, we're delighted to promote the Arda Young Creatives programme from the Design Museum London. The Design Museum recognises that the creative industries aren't as diverse as they should be and wants to contribute to a positive change. Every year, the Arda Young Creatives Programme welcomes a group of young people aged 14 to 16 living in London who come from underrepresented backgrounds and guides them to explore all aspects of design and how it can be wielded. Through working with established and emerging designers, the group learns about design processes and methods through hands-on workshops, conversations, collaborations and co-designing opportunities. Participants also meet their mentors, who can help guide them towards a career in the creative industries, whatever path they may choose. But don't take our word for it. Here's some thoughts from last year's cohort. One thing that I can take from this programme was that 
and all of us are designers in some way. The program has definitely widened my skill set and encouraged me to follow a career in design. For me, what I think was uh, involved is that I was able to get gain experience from uh, experts in the design industry. This course has made me really confident that I want to pursue a design a career in design, and it's actually given me quite a lot of self confidence. So, to find out more and keep up to date with this year's programme, head over to Instagram at Arda Young Creatives. That's A-R-D-A-G-H Young Creatives. Or visit the Design Museum website at designmuseum.org. What do you think this drives this kind of interest in the new? And I think that's both within companies and consumers, because to go back to those headphones and to throw my mum under the bus a little bit, when I mentioned to her, oh, I'm trying to get them repaired, her response was, oh, I'd rather just have a new pair. Like, oh, if they've broken, I'd much rather they send me a new pair. And I don't think she's necessarily unusual in that respect. I think a lot of customers have this idea of, we're very attracted by the shiny, the new, what seems exciting, that sort of unboxing moment. Why do you think that exerts such a pull on us? There are multiple levels of fascination with the new. There's lots of theoretical writing, actually, about the notion of the new and why we are so fascinated by it, which I won't bore everyone with. But I think there's like an association. There was like after the Industrial Revolution, this idea of the new was associated with modernity. It was sort of linked with this idea of productivity and a huge increase in productivity and that being associated with progress. And, you know, look how amazing the world is. You can just go into a shop and buy something whenever you want. And I think that has sort of spiralled, hasn't it? And I think the availability of goods so readily, you know, the click of a button now, something can arrive in my doorstep within like half an hour. That sort of power as a consumer has grown. You know, there's an adrenaline rush in doing that. You know, there's obviously demand on the part of corporations to make their products so enticing. And it's in their interest for us to you know, to want to buy more. And that's why we have phenomenon like planned obsolescence. So that, yeah, there's multiple reasons why we're fascinated by something new. And then I think there's also more of a tactile sort of uh, association with like the new, the shiny, the, you know, it just feels nice to have something new, you know, but there is a counterpoint to that, which is the fascination with the vintage and the fascination with the classic. The idea that a B&O CD player from the 90s can still be interesting. That kind of says a lot too. But I think we need to find other ways to to provide the stimuli of the new. And that's something that we are looking very much into also now in our industry is that, you know, if we can get to a point where the newness and the evolution of the products or the experiences around us can become virtual or digital, right? And then sort of invest more in the physical hardware and then prepare that to be more future-proof, then you can still provide maybe over a period of time the very nice stimuli of getting something new and great. But now it's just not resource intensive in the same way of creating a new product. That's one element. And I also feel that, you know, maybe there's a sort of counter movement going on because the new and the shiny and perfect has been something that people has been striving towards. But I think now sort of the beauty of imperfections and maybe even more interesting to see products and understand products actually that has character, that has a history and so on is actually something that is starting to move. But of course, it should never be sort of an inferior offering than the new 
because we still need to get our basic needs covered and it needs to be competitive and solve our real problems. Otherwise, it's more like a nostalgia, right? And that is actually what we have tried to do with a project that we had. We called it the Recreated Classics, where we took a 40-year-old turntable, the Biogram 4000 series, and we brought it back and we disassembled it and repaired and restored everything. And we remachined the original 40-year-old aluminium to look like new. So basically, we were able to provide a turntable that looked perfectly new, but had a history of, of 40 years. That, I think, is something that is really, really interesting. Hella, I wanted to put a slightly different question to you. How much power do you think the designer has to help change some of those opinions? Because one of the things which comes across, and I think you touch on it in the manifesto, is given the sort of systems we have and current aesthetic tastes, the new is very seductive, right? We understand why people like the new. It feels shiny and fresh and exciting. And persuading someone to go with a product that maybe embodies different values can be quite tricky because, you know, when you look at recycled materials, sometimes people feel, oh, it looks a bit make-do-and-mend. It doesn't look seductive or, you know, if something's easy to dismantle and take apart, people are very drawn into that kind of perfect sealed Apple product, you know, where it looks like a single object rather than something that's easy to repair. How much power do you think designers have or potential to help shift some of those preconceptions so people maybe see a more responsibly produced product and think, actually, that looks beautiful or that's very desirable or I like that this is older and can be repaired? I think it is not only the task of a designer to do so, to to come with new narratives on the old or on the used. I think for me, virgin materials or factory fresh products are for me not so attractive. And I think there is a larger group that is not attractive to this virgin materials. I find it a bit shameful to buy it that way. And there is a larger group. So I think you have to also look at the consumers group. There is, of course, there are people that like to have the shiny new, 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 you know, the innovators, the ones that have the latest of the latest new. You have the pioneers who want maybe a little bit less. You have the the forerunners who want to have maybe not the new, new, but, you know, on software level, the sharpest. And then you have the laggards, you know, it doesn't matter. I can have a second hand because I don't mind. If I look at my children, their identity is not based on materials. We, our generation, we still have a huge identity on the new and the style and on the material, the objects that are surrounding us. But the newer generation doesn't have this desire. So they don't want this fast fashion. They don't want this virgin materials. They feel ashamed and they have a moral way of consuming not as a very depressed mode but just like this is the way it is and it also doesn't it, it, the, the used and the vintage and all these new perspectives of a new narratives are for them a normal uh, expression for the old so i think we have to look at the consumers group in many different groups of people and it's really no longer only the group that wants the new Priya, how well do you think the general public kind of understand these issues? Because the museum, the Design Museum recently did a really interesting exhibition called Waste Age, looking at a lot of these issues. Do, do you think people fully understand the systems that lurk behind a lot of these discussions? I definitely think there's an increased awareness. You know, we all watch the coverage around COP and it's no secret that waste is like 
one of the biggest issues of our time. I think when you're stuck in a cycle, um, it's quite hard to release yourself. And even as, you know, I work at the museum and, you know, fully aware of everything that's in waste stage. Um, however, I still upgraded my iPhone. I confess, I'm not saying that my old one has ended up in a dump, but, you know, we're trapped in a system where if we don't have that device, then how are we then connected, for example? And I think that, you know, that it runs much deeper. And there are also ideas of like an object being a social signifier and the idea of having something new being associated with, yeah, being cool and being on trend and stuff. But I do think that's changing. And, you know, it's really promising that there's like a new generation um, among whom buying something secondhand is cool. And, you know, now I would say that I do feel slightly socially shamed if anyone comes over and I've got a bunch of shopping bags because I've just been and bought myself a load of new clothes. I feel guilt. So that is a new feeling that I did not experience before. Madison Richard, what what do you think that design can do to sort of speed that transition? What what ways of there are there of designing, of starting to make products which perhaps embody this sort of ecological ethos a little bit more, how do you make them desirable? How do you make them seem like the thing that people want to get? I think, I mean, if I can start, we should say just with a comment from, seen from, from the lens of, of Bang & Olufsen. I mean, again, we, we need to sort of uh, be clear that we are starting from a point in an industry where we are very far from being able to create products with a net positive impact to the environment, right? So it is still a lot about doing less harm, basically, and trying to find new solutions there. So I think it's fine that we as an industry for the next years try to sort of limit the harm. But at some point, there needs to be a more radical change in the way that we make it possible for consumers to behave around the use of our products, the way that value is perceived with our products. Because, you know, it's also, I would say, premium or luxury segment, right? You could maybe initially say that it's a high price tag on a product. That's also where we can help each other to educate because if we can invest more on quality and durability and, and the flexibility to repair and upgrade, right? Uh, of course, that will in some cases increase the, the cost of doing a product. But maybe we could redefine the value perception also, right? Because there's a huge difference. Uh, uh, you know, if you take a price tag on a product and if you sort of assume that it's zero worth when you leave the store, right? Then we are thinking take, make, and you know, throw away kind of linear logic. But on the other hand, if it's a product that can last 10 years, then you can basically write off that cost over you know, 10 years, or maybe after three years, you can resell it. I can sell my speaker to Richard, right? And, and, and I get some of my money back. And then in reality, the real cost of ownership is actually very different, right? So I think there's a lot about the total cost of ownership understanding. And then of course, really making sure that you have accessible, convenient and affordable solutions to repair upgrade and so on and keep the products you know circulate because that's the best we can do in our industry we have to invest energy and materials right uh, the best we can do is to extend lifetime to write off those environmental investments over more years right that will reduce the annual footprint yeah and i think to add to that i mean if you take you know the iphone and priya's desire to have kind of the latest iteration of it that kind of cost us of ownership and the value perception might change between the person that owns it from new versus someone who might buy it from a secondary um website but because the company and, and almost doing a ban on olufsen in the, the physical product the manufacturing of that product is designed to stand the test of time and be durable robust now is, you know, even the internal component tree is designed for breakdown and repair and Apple having just recently brought in a repair program as well. That it means that it's not all about 
me as one individual buying a new phone having it for 10 years. It might be that it has three or four different owners over that time whose values perceptions are different and their requirements are different. But the product is designed and engineered and manufactured to allow that benefit and therefore the cost of ownership kind of drops even though the price point is higher. So that's the basics of what we should be doing as designers and manufacturers, I think. Is there a risk at all that within design, sustainability comes to be seen as a rich person's game to some extent? Because, I mean, we touched on it before. One of the arguments you hear a lot is that we need to invest in better designed, longer lasting products because it's better for the environment. And in the long run, it works out cheaper because if you're keeping it for many, many years, it's more cost effective. Sound reasoning. It makes sense. It's correct in some ways. I suppose the the counter to that is people say, well, that only works if you can afford that product in the first place. Now, I think a lot of the examples we've given, the products are being charged at a fair price. It's just having it properly designed, responsibly manufactured, built to last, can be expensive. But for lots of people, for a huge sector of the market, they might say, look, I love that the values embodied in it. That's great. But I cannot afford that. I know it will work out more expensive in the long run to buy lots of cheap crap and cycle through it. But that's all I can afford. How as designers do you kind of deal with that? Um, I'm not expecting you to have an answer, but it, it feels a slightly dispiriting situation. I totally agree. I find this really greenwashing for the rich. So that's why I truly believe that it's not on the consumer's plate. It is on the plate of a company to change something from within in the systems. It's not the problem of consuming. It's the problem of the making of the things. To, for instance, come with a material passport for each object so that we know as consumers what is what is in the product and how big is the footprint and there is also this idea of i don't know i read this book material matters where they have this passport or the human rights or the material rights for each material i really like that idea too so that materials are no longer anonymous so that you give them an identity so that they can't get lost in the world so that we always reuse them and i think it's also a marketing trick to give the consumers the responsibility for the mess in the world that's really not true i think we are much much cleverer we just need solutions from the politics they have to change something and and set new rules and then the economies or the companies they have to follow we talk a lot about kind of the the total design story and often or back in the old days of product design or design consultancy, you were asked to design a particular thing. You weren't asked to question why you were designing that thing. I think as designers now, we take it upon ourselves to understand the total holistic vision and reason for designing something, even though you might be designing a particular thing within that whole story, so that you can better understand and create more efficient solutions. And I think that sky glass for me is a really good example because it's a subscription model proposition which has shaken up that sector it allows sky to create a user experience that transcends product into the system itself and everything that you get is considered and controlled in that sense but it also from a product perspective is the first carbon neutral tv and in a really simple terms for me it's about you have one product which combines what you would probably go into a shop and need to buy three or four of you know in terms of sound bars and different things so there's a material efficiency around that but also the fact that 
realizing that with Sky, certainly in the you know in the UK, that there are guys that drive around in vans and install or used to install satellite dishes. Well, now they don't have to install satellite dishes. They they bring the product, they remove it from its packaging, they install it, and then they remove the packaging, which is all 100% recyclable. So, you know, I wouldn't say Sky is a, is a high-end proposition, but we're trying to tie that whole kind of responsible and circular design system into something that feels effortless to the consumer at an accessible entry point. Okay, so if you think about the entire planet, the proportion of people... <laughs> Um, who buy designer furniture is very small. If that increase, would that make a substantial difference to the state of the planet? I feel that that is not where we need to target energies as much as I love really good design. I think it's about the small things that everybody does and everybody uses every single day that we need to change. So for example, the toothbrush is such a you know, a humble object. It's so small, but apparently it creates a huge amount of waste. Um, you know, the plastic bag, we all know how damaging the plastic bag is to the environment. Frankly, you know, I've tried to invest in some nice design pieces that I can afford. And I've been shocked at the packaging that I've received. So I think it's the small things, it's packaging, it's things like plastic bags, it's like the everyday things that we, you know, we can all change. I'm aware that we're coming towards the end of our time, but I want to end the podcast on a positive note to give people a little bit of optimism and hope. So I'm going to ask you all, are there examples, and it can be of your own work or work you see elsewhere, that you find encouraging, that you think are striking a good balance with this idea of... um, rejecting newness for newness sakes or just a good approach to sort of product design or systems design what do you see out there that people can look to and think this is a model we can learn from yeah we of course know all the examples of Airbnb and the shared companies like swap feeds this uh, bike rental where you don't have to take care of anything or mud jeans where you can give your jeans and, and lease jeans so that they recycle the jeans but in the the existing companies that's interesting to look at what are the existing companies doing in this new service economy that's something that I find very interesting and I know Philips is doing something very interesting it's called light as a service so the lighting company in holland i think they only do it in holland now so you don't buy the lamps you only buy the lights if you have a store or you have an office or whatever or also cities they come they make a light plan they make an energy plan for you and they just install it and they take care of the repair they of course take care that the lamps are have a very long lifetime because now they are responsible and before that they made products that also stopped working after a few years because then they could sell a new one so it is total shift in making and producing the product because it's a burden for your own company if it is broken very easily and so the client is totally carefree if you move you know if you move out of the store or whatever uh, or the office goes bigger or smaller they just take care of it all and you don't have to take your your whole system out i think this is very interesting what existing companies are doing in this service uh, economy model I'm working with a fashion designer on a display at the moment and it's worth mentioning her work because it's amazing. She's called Bethany Williams and her work is basically made of waste materials. So if you go to her studio, you'll find like old tents, 
which she's managed to turn into like streetwear. She worked at this rehabilitation centre in northern Italy where they have a weaving workshop and she found all sorts of scrap materials like foil, even like this warning kind of tape. And she made, designed these amazing fabrics and worked with this weaving workshop to turn them into materials. She's even used ribbon that she's been given from toy waste. So whichever sources of material are available, she's managed to then weave them into these incredible fabrics. And I think the styles and the structures that she's using, they kind of play to historic references, not to like contemporary shapes. So hopefully they have kind of more longevity. And, you know, we talked about good design and the need for longevity. And I think she's done that in an interesting way. It's not a particular product, or but I think there's something super interesting around additive manufacturing i mean we're um, involved in that at the moment on, on several projects because you're not restricted by the the manufacturing processes that have gone before and some of the you know the things that have prevented more responsible products being um, generated with additive manufacturing and generative design you can reduce material use you know up to an increasingly over 50 percent but improve the functional performance of the part i mean and you look at commercial aircraft structures and components are becoming more and more additive manufactured because of the requirement to reduce fuel burn increase material efficiency reduce weight so i think there's a whole world that is going to be unlocked from a physical perspective um through those types of innovation yeah, with the danger of being a little bit biased with what I do on a daily basis. I think I'm very sort of uh, have a lot of tension drawn right now about how we can do great things to things that already exist. We have sort of invested environmental footprint in creating many different things. So I'm I'm getting inspired with some of the things happening. For example, with the Jaguar Classics program, there's a movement around resto modding, you know, taking some of these classical objects and upgrade them again to look like new. That's very much some of the inspiration that I also saw that brought into our own world of turntables and so on. But the whole challenge of sort of, again, redefining that old does not have to be bad, right? It can actually be even more desirable than new if we do it the right way. And it gives us a totally different way to create trust and attachment with our audience and connect, I would say, even deeper with, with our customers because there's a deeper purpose, there's a deeper storyline behind this because we also have to admit that emotional durability can sometimes be as important as the functional durability of a product, right? So so that is where I actually spend a lot of my, um, my time thinking about how we can do some of these things as well. Well, I think that draws us to the end of the podcast. And I hope if people take anything away, it's this idea of uncoupling newness and oldness from good and bad. Whether something is good design is always a separate question to whether it's brand new or old. So thank you so much to the panel for joining us today. And I hope everyone has enjoyed listening in. Thank you for listening to Where Next, a podcast made in collaboration with Map Project Office. The series is hosted by Map, along with me, Ollie Stratford, and India Blanc. It's produced by Evie Hall, with editing from Oscar Yell. To catch our next episode of Where Next, you can follow Map Project Office on Instagram at, at MapProjectO. That's O for Office. And you can also subscribe to Decenio Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.